Scientists believe in materialism like any, you know, deep dish religious person believe, you know, believes in their dogma. It's just scientific dogma and they believe it, you know, hook, line and sinker and they can't get away from it. And it's not just isolated physicists, it's our whole culture. Welcome back. I am here with Tom Campbell. Tom, welcome. Uh, Thank you, uh, Sean. It's good to be here. So Tom is best known or perhaps best known for his big toe in terms of theory of everything. So we're not going to start there. We're going to start a little bit back when he was a physicist and try to get an understanding of how it came that he was working for the the DOD as a physicist and then somehow got into this consciousness field. I know I threw a lot at you, Tom, but if you could kind of walk us from the beginning and connect all those dots. Yeah, well, let me just start at the beginning then. And you said when he was a physicist, I still am a physicist. (laughs) Well, I mean like a hard materialist physicist as opposed to. Well, let's start there. Yeah. I was in uh, middle to the starting downside of in my 20s. I was in graduate school working on my PhD, and I saw a, a, a sign on the door of the physics building that said, uh, learn to meditate, just $20. And then it was a whole list of wonderful things that would happen if you learn to meditate. And I ignored them all except one, and it said, get by with less sleep. And I thought, oh, I need that because, you know, I was doing low energy nuclear physics research mm-hmm. for my thesis. And I had a big Van de Graaff accelerator, a huge machine that had a zillion working parts. And when that monster was up and running, you stayed there and took data. You didn't turn it off and say, well, I'm tired now. I come back in the morning. And it wasn't like that. And there was a whole queue of people that wanted time mm-hmm. on that machine. So if you missed your slot, because it was broken down or something, well, you got back in the end of the line, you know, for in the queue. So and where we, was this? What school was this at? This was at the University of Virginia. Okay. Okay. And uh, this was late 1960s, early 1970s, in around that was probably 60. Oh, this particular episode of me, I was kind of early in my graduate school there was probably 68 69 something like that is what we're talking about yeah i'm an old guy i i'm not quite as i'm older than i look another year and a half i'll be 80 so i'm 78 yeah you look you look pretty darn good for 80. (laughs) so we're close to 80 right yeah so in any case so i go back a long way but here i am a graduate student and being able to stay awake for long periods of time just was something that i needed to do because when you're doing these experiments, not only do you have to just stay with it as long as the machine's working, but you have to stay sharp. You can't stay with it and, you know, and be drowsy and, and not pay attention because you're sitting there with all this equipment and things are changing and you're adjusting. And it's a full-time job to monitor and keep up with it. And experiments have things that you do every so often, you, you know, change things and Anyway, it, you know, you have to keep the... Well, the, uh, it's also like you can't really capture a reading in some software database. Like you actually have to be there to write it down in some cases, right? Well, yeah, this was back in the old days of computer. You know, when you went to a punch cards, room, yeah. you're going with punch cards. Yeah. So hmm. this, this was not the point where everything just, you know, all the machines talk to each other and they take the data in the background and, you know, all you have to do is look at it after it's over. No, this wasn't those kind of days at all. Yeah, you had to be there. And you had to keep that machine running anyhow. So I learned how to meditate and I found that it was very easy for me to do that. So I did what they said. I meditated for like 20, 25 minutes twice a day, which was what their prescription was. And at that point, I was like most physicists. I had this concept that if you couldn't measure it, if you couldn't interact with it, then it was either didn't exist 
or if it did somehow, it was irrelevant. It didn't matter, you know. That's that sounds like NASA's uh, press conference yesterday. But anyway, continue. (laughs) That sounds, you know, they they call that the operational definition of reality. And that is if you can operate on something, and that's what I mean by measure. I don't mean stick a yardstick next to it. By measure, I mean interact with it in some way, exchange energy with it, you know, in some Mm -hmm. way. So if you can't do that, then it's irrelevant. It doesn't exist. It isn't something you can work with. So that was my definition of reality was all the things you could measure. And anything else that didn't fit in that category, well, that really wasn't real. Or if mm-hmm. it was, it didn't matter. It's beyond the scope of science. You know. So in any case, that's how I was when I went into this meditation course. And about three or four months into the meditation, playing around, and I'm an experimentalist, so I just tend to play around with things to see how they work. And I was playing around with my meditation, and I discovered that I could debug my computer code in my mind. I could see a scroll of the, all the statements just kind of scrolling by, and anything that had an error or problem, something that would cause it to bomb you know, in the computer, that would be in red. So I'd stop the scrolling back up, look at the line, because I wrote all the code. So I was very familiar with all the lines. What, what, what would the each line of code represent? Would it be like heart health or like brain activity? Like what would it? No, no, no. This was just computer code that was there to analyze the data that I was getting from this uh, accelerator machine. Now, oh, okay. I get a lot of data out. Then you get a lot of raw data, and then you have to do some analysis on that data. You just don't publish raw data. You have to look at it and discover your noise sources and discover, you know, your peaks. You get all the data and then you do some analysis with some fast Fourier transforms to try to find out what frequencies are in there. You know, you've got some stuff yeah. to do with the data before. Wait, you so you were doing data. fast Fourier transforms on sleeves of punch cards? No, no, that was a function. That kind of thing would have been in a function in the computer. You know, the, the computer okay. was meant for science. That's what it was bought for. But there was, you know, back in those days, there was one big computer took up probably as much space as a typical high school gym. You know, it was a huge room and it maybe had a few kilobytes of memory. You know, (laughs) megabytes were out of the question at that time. And it probably ran about a thousand times less speed than your cell phone. You know, but that was just the way computers were mm-hmm. in those days and it served the entire university so anybody in any field at the university needed a computer that was the computer and so like the vandergraaf generator there's a line a queue that you had to get into to use yeah, that you have to get into a queue and in those days there was only one feedback as far as finding your errors and that one feedback was that the computer people would tell you your job bombed that's it. That's the only feedback you got, you know, it wasn't like, well, on this line at that point, you know, now we've got all this, this really fancy stuff that tells you where the problems are, but it wasn't like that then. Your job yeah, there's bombed. no debugger. You were the, de- no, you were the you debugger. Were, you were the only debugger there was. So they would take your cards, they'd throw them in the machine, it would either run or it wouldn't. And they, you'd have a printout, of course, and the printout would print as long as it was running and got the statements that told it to print. And when it bombed, that's it. It quit. They took you out of the machine and you tried to find out what the trouble was and you get back in the queue. And in that case, you know, you may wait four or five days before you got through the queue to get your job run again. So now we're talking about cards and all kinds of things to go wrong with punch cards. One of the things that goes wrong with punch cards is that the punch itself will change a little bit over time. It's a, it's a machine, you know, it's full of mm-hmm. wheels and gears and stuff and they wear out. And sometimes it would punch a hole that was just a, you know, a quarter of a millimeter, you know, too far to the right or too far to the left or not just the right spot. And when that happened, your job would bomb. So it wasn't just you making errors, but there was other things. Sometimes the guys who were feeding the cards in, you know, my job had four boxes of cards, and I think there's like a thousand or two thousand cards in each box. So they're feeding these cards through, and they're picking up handfuls and feeding them, and then putting them back in boxes. And sometimes they'd stick your cards in; they get them confused. 
you know, and they'd put them in wrong. And sometimes you'd get your cards and they were all scrambled. You'd have to put your cards back in, in line. And that would maybe take a week out of your research time because you have to get in the queue, you know, to get back into the computer system. So in those days, being able to debug your code was a very important step. And people didn't just, well, let's try this, you know, and see what happens. Well, that didn't work, so let's change that and let's try this. You know, that's the way it is today. But then you spent days going over every single line to try to find, because any little error, just a key punch error, may take a week out of what you're doing. So it was slow business, and you didn't want to just change something and see what happens. You guys, you'd never get done. You know, it'd take you another five years to get out of school if you did that. You had to be smart about doing the decode. So the, the debugging was in my mind while I was doing my meditation, and I just thought about it. And it was one of the things that was on my mind, what was wrong with the lines of code. So I see this code start coming up, and I looked at these things, and I said, okay, I remembered them. There wasn't a whole lot of them. There's like four or five of them in there. And I went back to my deck and I looked at that stuff and they were all errors, except for one wasn't an error at all. It looked like it was perfect. And that turned out that the punch hole wasn't lined up. There really was an error. So now that hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, I was thinking first, well, there's some subliminal thing going on, you know, somewhere deep down in my you know, unconscious, I knew that there was an error, or I recognized I forgot the semicolon at the end of the sentence to mm-hmm. tell it that the, you know, there's another statement coming, and I did something wrong, and I was just pulling that stuff up out of my subconscious, but a punch error? A punch error isn't in my subconscious. A punch error is just right. a, something that happened, you know, and those kinds, and that was, that was shown as well. So. Here I am, this middle 20s physicist, convinced that the reality is just what you can measure. And suddenly, I've got this information, this experience, and I repeat it. It's not like it just happened once and never happened again. I could do it whenever I wanted to. And I got to be uh, really good at getting my stuff through that computer because my debug suddenly got very efficient. Matter of fact, it was so efficient, I had a lot of people tapping me on the shoulder saying, could you help me debug, you know, my code? So Was this because of just the med- like right after you implemented meditation that this started happening or was yeah. it something else? No, it was while hmm. I was in a meditation state. I was sitting there meditating and this thought came in about thinking about my code and so on. And it just made that connection. So it just kind of happened. And when I realized it, I played with it because I'm an experimentalist. What I do is play with things to see how they work. So I'd try it. Sometimes I'd put an arrow in it, see if I could see that arrow, if it would come up. And so I played with it over the next year or two because shoot, being able to debug my code was a great advantage in those days, the way that system worked. So that just changed my mind. I thought, well, there's obviously another whole part of reality that doesn't have anything to do with being measured. This was something happening in mind. This is something happening in in consciousness. It wasn't a physical thing, or at least I could come up with no physical, you know, thing going on there. It was just information that I was getting that wasn't in my head anyplace. So where did it come from? And why did I get it? And where does that information reside? And I had all these things I was thinking about. And then my whole idea about reality changed. And I said, well, okay, the physical world that we understand that most physicists do, that is just basically what you can measure. But there's more to it than that. There's more going on than just that. And that was then a big mystery. And because what physicists do is model reality. I mean, that's a simple way of Mm -hmm. saying what is physics is we model reality. And I wanted to understand it. I wanted to know what were the limits what made it happen? How did it happen? Because it, it wasn't random. You know, it wasn't like this was something random going on. It was something I did on purpose when I wanted to do it and it worked. So it was a real thing. That means when it's not random, that means there's rules behind it. Mm-hmm. There's, there's structure behind it. You know, so, well, I'm a physicist. What is that structure? What are the rules? 
So I had that on my mind and I played with meditation then until I left graduate school, got a job and my boss, I was only about three or four weeks into the job. He tossed me Bob and Rose book journey out of the body. Yep. And I thought this is a strange thing for somebody to give me journeys out of the body. Look, you know, I'm a physicist working with a bunch of scientists. Where'd this come from? But you know, he was my boss. So I read the book and he said, Tom, well, what do you think? And uh, I said, well, I think uh, that if this guy's making it all up to, you know, to sell books, then he's got a good imagination. I said, but if it's real, you know, if he really has these experiences and he's done the kind of research that he says he's done in the books that shows that these things are real. I said, well, then that is a big wow, because mm -hmm. here I am and had been now for, you know, six months or maybe a year, year and six months for some time, been thinking about this other part of reality in my mind, trying to make sense of it. And now I run across this guy who's kind of gotten out of the physical reality. And I'm thinking, well, that might be an interesting connection to see what's going on. There it might help me understand this bigger picture about consciousness. So I told my boss that, um, yeah, if he's telling the truth, that would be very significant. And I said, but, you know, how do you know how you know if the guy's lying or not? You know, you, you really don't know. So about a month or two after that, my boss comes around and says, we found out where Bob Monroe lives. It's not that far away. There's a bunch of us going to go see him. You want to come along? And I said, absolutely. I want to come along because I wanted to see, you know, was this guy like a carnival barker, you know, making stuff up? Was he a showman? You know, was he into selling books or what? So I go out. Well, he's a radio executive in the prior yeah, he, life, wasn't yeah, he? <laughs> yeah, he was. A, yeah, he, he did radio programs out of Richmond, Virginia for a while. And I didn't know much about him other than I'd read his book and I went to see him and he impressed me as having a kind of an attitude and feel about him, sort of like an engineer. He had an engineer's mindset. I don't think mm -hmm. he was an engineer, but he had, that was the kind of personality he was. It was very fact-based, very matter of fact, straightforward, uh, you know, not a lot of frills in the conversation. You know, engineers, you know, are a certain type like that, that. So I figured, well, he seems pretty straight. And then as I got to his house, you know, the whiteboard fence, the horses out in the pasture, you know, the lake, the, you know, the mansion on the hill, I saw all that. And I said, this guy's not worried about selling books, you know, selling, right. selling, selling books called Journey Out of the Body has got to be a dribble of income compared to what this guy must have, you know, and as it turned out, then he was the owner and chief executive of a cable company. That's when cable mm -hmm. was just making it big, you know, it was just, and he was the first there and he had the whole market. So he was a, he was an executive at a cable company in a very booming business. So he was doing very well. And I knew that book sales, you know, making up strange books was not, that wasn't what was going on, you know? And I asked him some real straightforward questions because I don't tend to beat around the bush because I'm a physicist and I usually say what's on my mind. And he would give me very straight answers, you know, so I felt good that what I had learned is what I wanted to learn. And no, the guy wasn't making it up. And yes, he had some unusual experiences and he was just as anxious and curious to figure out how it worked and why it worked and what the structure was behind it as I was. So he had built this building that he wanted to turn into a lab and it didn't have anything in it. It was just rooms. This was a building. And he made a deal with myself and electrical engineer, Dennis Menerick, who also worked where I did. And he was one of the people that went out there with me. And Bob was talking to, oh, there's probably like 10 of us went out to, to, mm -hmm. to interview him. And he said, well, I've just made this lab and I'd like to study consciousness, you know, particularly the out-of-body phenomenon and, kind of, and try to figure out what is it and how does it work? And he asked us, he says, are any of you, you know, we were all scientists, mathematicians, you know, technical people. And he says, any of you like to, you know, work here with me? And well, my hand shot up immediately. You know, I've been in school all my life. So, you know, raising your hand is, is just was my, what I did. Right. And then it, it turned out that Dennis and I both said, hey, we'd be glad to come out and work with it, which meant the first six months all we did is build equipment you know because they didn't have anything there so we built an eeg and we got hold of an old ekg and 
we scrounged up stuff out of the physics departments that were back, you know, on shelves that hadn't been used for years that uh, they didn't know what to do with. And he scrounged stuff out of the double E department and, you know, that wasn't being used. Uh, we helped put some equipment in the lab. And the deal was that we would be his scientists for free if he would teach us what he knew about out of body. If he would teach mm -hmm. us to do that, because we knew that if you just study somebody else, you're not going to really understand it. The only way you're going to mm -hmm. understand it, if it's your own experience, if you have the experience, then you'll know, you know, what it's about. So he agreed to that. So we'd come out, we'd work in the lab for a couple of hours, then he'd come up. He had three booths there. He called them check units. I don't know what all that came from. He loved acronyms. Bob was a kind of an acronym kind of guy. Also made you think he was an engineer. <laughs> he talked right. like an, he talked like an engineer, you know, so anyway we got in his beds they were acoustically isolated and there were three of them so i got in number one dennis got in number three so we had a blank one between us so the the isolation acoustically was really good and if one of us screamed the other one would just hear a little muffled something in a normal conversation you didn't hear anything at all you know it was pretty good so how long did you know bob monroe before you decided to go into one of these units where no one could hear you scream <laughs> <laughs> Not very long at all. After we told Bob that we were willing, he had some travel and other things to do, but within a month we were there. And he put us in these units and we would listen to his sounds. And his sounds at that time were just some things that he had made up because he was kind of an audio engineer, you know, sort of. He didn't have that background, you know, as far as education, but he had done a lot of that in the radio business. So he had made up these sounds. And actually, it was Dennis that uh, came across binaural beats. There was an old article by Oster, somebody Oster. I don't think it's the guy that makes blenders, but uh, somebody else named Oster who did the research with binaural beats and said binaural beats have a tendency to entrain brain waves. So we thought, wow, let's go see, you know, and that's how Hemisync came about, which is Bob Monroe's, you know, patented sound was it came out of Dennis and I playing in the lab with what we learned from Oster about binaural beats. So And that's told, just one sound wave at a different slightly different frequency, a different sound wave at a slightly different frequency. Right. And then it's just math when you add the two sine waves, the the frequency you'll isolate right. the frequency you want, right? Right. Yeah. It's just two sounds and you get the difference in beats. You know, it's a superposition of the two sound waves. And if one's just a little off, then every once in a while they're in phase and every once in a while they're not in phase. So, because they're a little different frequencies by just a little bit. So they go in mm -hmm. and out of phase. And every time they go in and out of phase, you get a beat, a little sound. So you'd, you'd get a beat at the frequency of the difference. So we'd say you'd play 100 hertz and 104 hertz, you'd get a four hertz four beat. Hertz. Now, if you do that in the air, you set up two speakers and you do that, well, you'll hear the beat. It'll be just as clear as anything, you know, in the air. You'll hear that wah, 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 you know, four hertz beat will go on. But this was with a headset. And it was a headset, not with real high volume. So it was a headset. And you'd put the two sounds in. And then at the corpus callosum, which is the membrane between the two hemispheres, you'd hear the beat frequency. So you were actually getting the superposition of the two sounds was taking place inside the center of the brain, not out in the air. Mm -hmm. And what we later discovered was if you also do a brain scan at the same time, you see that what that, that did is it tended to synchronize the hemispheres. If you're looking at the hemispheres and you know, they have these false color things, which shows you all kinds of colors of what's going on mm -hmm. inside the head. And generally there's a lot of stuff going on. It comes and goes and this part's yellow and that part's red and then it moves around. And, and when you put the binaural beats on, everything in the two hemispheres sort of look like mirror images of each other. They tend to synchronize and calm down and kind of settle. And we found out with the EEG, that's what I meant, not EKG, but the EEG, EKG is the heart, EEG with, you know, things on your head, the electrodes to look, pick up the brain waves, you tend to settle into a theta state. Theta mm -hmm. is just above delta. Delta is where you lose consciousness. You know, beta is where we are now, mostly. Now, we got all kinds of frequencies going on, but just the dominant frequency where we are now is beta. And then you get down into alpha, which is relaxed, chilled mm -hmm. out. 
alpha. Then it's like remote alpha, viewing, remote yeah, viewing type yeah, stuff. Then, right. then now underneath alpha is theta. That's more than chilled out. You know, now you're in a just just on the border of being asleep, but not asleep. That's in the theta. Then if you go down to delta, you lose consciousness. So that's kind of a very general, you know, look at the brainwaves. So what we did is Bob had written in his book and had told us that when he would go out of body, he'd feel this vibration around four hertz. That was one of his artifacts that he always got, this vibration. So we said, all right, let's put one sound in here and one sound plus four hertz in the other one and see if we can duplicate that. And bingo, it was a very powerful entrainment. And we put lots and lots of people through it because Dennis and I weren't just doing it for ourselves. This was a lab. We were trying to understand how it worked. So everybody that we could grab, which included our families, our wives, <laughs> our children, and anybody else that was passing by that we could grab and say, come here and listen to this. So yeah, more happened? data, more data, right? <laughs> right, exactly. So we'd grab them, we'd put them in there, and we'd, we'd put the sound on them. And oh, I'd say, you know, 95% of them would go into a theta state because we could see that. And, you know, some of them would claim that they couldn't remember anything. They fell asleep, but they weren't really asleep. You could tell they weren't asleep because then when you change the theta state up into a, an alpha, they were pop awake just like that. And they weren't groggy or anything. So they didn't have the, the kind of the attributes of just waking up from asleep. They had the attributes of just waking up from being unconscious. You know, they just popped awake. So in any case, that was a very, it seemed to be a very powerful thing. And after that, you know, Bob, actually, when Dennis and I were playing and coming and playing with these binaural beats, because we wanted to know what's the best bass frequency, you know, what's the volume, what's the intensity, should it be loud, should it be mm -hmm. soft, uh, should it be, and we were around four hertz, but should it be really 3.8 or 4.2? So we made excursions around all these things, all the various parameters that we had, then we used different waves. Well, what if it were square waves? What if it were, you know, sine waves? What if it were you know, triangle waves. So we had some wave things that we went on and see what difference would it make. And as it turned out, we, we found out what was optimum, what worked the best. Bob came back from an extended uh, leave. He was out doing talks at someplace, I don't remember, in California. He came back a couple of weeks later and said, hey, Bob, we got something that really seems to put people in a state that is pretty much equivalent to what good meditators get into. So if you've been mm -hmm. a meditator for 10 years, you get in a theta state. And if you've had 10 years practice, you can hold it there. You're very steady in that theta state. And that's what this did. It kind of grabbed you and put you in a theta state and held you there steady. So it made people who had never meditated, it, it made them able to have a meditation. You know? What was the optimal state or, or the I mean, it was the sine wave, square wave. It turned out was to be the sine, it turned out to be sine waves. It turned out to be slightly less than four hertz, about three point eight five, something like that. I mean, and this is a random question, but is that is there anything special about that particular number? Is it related to no, golden ratio or anything like no, that? No, not that I can tell. It just this was just trial and error. You know, we tried different okay. things and saw what worked best. You know, we weren't at this point. We weren't doing theory. We were just trying to find something that we could maybe do theory on later. So we just. What about intensity? That. Like how many well, decibels? What, what Dennis and I did is that we tried different things and we thought that if it was a little louder, it was a little better, a little more powerful. And we'd turn it up pretty loud for ourselves because then we'd put ourselves in the booth and listen to it when we were playing with it. And we'd have it, oh, not uncomfortably loud, but loud kind of the way you listen to rock music you know not uncomfortably loud but loud it's better loud mm -hmm. than it is you know you can play some screaming rock music real softly but it loses some of the emotion and the feeling it has with it and, and is it because it increases vibration in some sense or like more power i, I don't know I, th I think it just created you know with the louder sound you're going to get louder beats i think it just intensified the beat frequencies got louder so got stronger. Now, Bob did do some uh, work with it and, and did it very subtly that he slipped it into his hemisync. It's very subtle. You don't just hear it there so clearly. And it still seemed to work. I didn't think it quite was worked as powerfully, but it still worked. 
well enough. So when it's just the pink the, pink noise they always yeah, talk about. It's not no. pink noise. That's different. Pink noise is basically white noise with the high end frequencies taken out. So you so if you look at a white noise means you have random random frequencies. So it's across all mm-hmm. the frequencies you can hear, you know, from twenty to twenty thousand. That's what people hear. So you just randomly select across all that stuff. You get white noise, and then if you take you know from I don't know, 15 to 20 and throw it away, you know, 15,000 to 20,000 and throw it away, then you end up with pink noise. So it's a noise that's a little softer and not quite so grating. White noise is like static, you know, between stations. You got a TV station that there is no station there, but you got your TV on and you just hear the, you know, that that's not really all that pleasant for most people. So they, the pink noise is just a little, less jarring would some of that white noise have anything below 20 hertz like infrasound stuff that makes you really yeah probably uneasy? probably uh, not now in my bar- binaural beats i created a whole bunch of binaural beats which anybody can buy and they're not very expensive 20 25 maybe you get you are like they on your website 13 of them i think they're on my website but i know for sure they're on the mbt events and mbt events.com those I'll put people, it down in the links. Yeah, those are the people that organize my events and where I'm going and what I'm doing and that sort of thing. And they have a website where most of the stuff that's for sales over on their over on their side of the MBT event side. So anyhow, yeah, you can get them there. But I generated these beats and they're pretty complicated. They're not just simple beats. They have lots of structure in them. And I did that just by I give talks to people, teach people how to do paranormal things and I'd use beats and then I'd modify them a little and see if it worked better or not. And I'd modify them a little Well, after, you know, five or six years of modification, this last set is kind of the optimal set for most people. Now I was giving it to a whole bunch of people. So when you have a hundred people, you're going to run into a little bit of everything, you know? So it's not like they were custom made for an individual. They were custom made to fit most people. So I have quite a selection over bass frequencies and other things, because as it turns out, Guys like a little lower bass frequencies, girls like a little higher bass frequencies. There's differences and it depends on what your problem is. If your problem is staying focused, then a higher frequency with a little more volume is what you need. If you don't have a problem staying focused, then a little uh, you know, lower bass frequency is a lot more subtle and works better for you. So it kind of depends on the individual. So I made a whole smear across them so that everybody would find something that that they liked. And that's what these 13 tapes are. It's a collection of different things to suit different people. And some people who love this sound, you know, and hate that sound by the end of two weeks using them, it's the other way around. They Now they love hmm. the one they hated, <laughs> you know. So. Well, do you have something for people who like just can't stop thinking? Like my brain is yeah. constantly, I've always yeah. had difficulty meditating because yeah, I can't stop it. All right. That's, well, I've got two things. One, these binaural beats will do that. You know, unless you're really hardcore ADD, these will put you in that theta state and basically keep you there. As you start to drift out, it pushes you right back. You know, so it will work pretty well on, I'd say, you know, 90% of the population. This will jam you into a state that is equivalent to somebody who's been meditating for at least a decade. Mm-hmm. give you about as much control as they had. Matter of fact, when I was at Monroe, we had a troop of monks come through. I think they were Tibetan monks on tour, trying to drum up some money for their cause and whatever. And, and they came out to the lab and we, we put them in because we wanted to see what their opinion was. Now, these were people who been meditating for, you know, 30 years. And we wanted to see what their take of what it was. And they loved it. They were amazed. And they said, you know, he says, it took us at least a decade, if not more, to be able to do what this does to us in an instant. So this just slam puts you there. And uh, they were very impressed with it. So that's why I say it's worth about 10 years worth of meditation, because that's what they told us. That's what they thought it was. So they sounds like you're undercharging, Tom. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, it's not about making money. It's about helping people connect and understand and grow and have bigger pictures. That's what it's about. So I try to price everything just 
you know, a little bit more than what it cost me to, to do it. I tend to do that. Like my books, I got three books, you know, and I price those as just a little more than what it costs to print them. You know, you can buy all three of them for $25. You know, it's like $8 a piece. And the links will be below for that too. Yeah. So I try to do that because it's making money isn't a thing. You know, I, I don't have to live on that income. I can live without that income. I live better with some income and I need a little income from the book so I can buy, you know, more and get more books printed at any case. So they have to pay for themselves. I don't have deep pockets. I'm retired. So my pockets are not deep. Mm -hmm. So it just has to pay for itself basically is the idea. So in any case, so those binaural beats are out there if most people like them. And I'll give you a little history on it. I did a program at TMI, oh, I don't know, three or four years ago. Actually, I did like three or four of them just using TMI as, as a facility. So it was my When you program. say TMI, do you mean Three Mile Island? The Monroe Institute. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Be careful what you Mon say. Yeah. The yeah, my, my grandparents lived in Harrisburg when that whole thing uh, went down. So it means, yeah. A, yeah. A different thing okay monroe do, institute yeah. monroe institute so we went out to the monroe so i went to the monroe institute because they had a nice facility their facility small you can only put about 28 people but we squeezed in a few more and anyway i had a lot of people who had come out of the monroe experience were there because monroe advertised it and i advertised it so a lot of people that were just out of the mbt experience were there so we had some people had been to the Monroe Laboratory, you know, 50 times, and some people had been using MBT stuff for five or 10 years, too. So we had some people from both sides. And I split the sounds that I played from my own binaural beats or Bob's sounds. Now, Bob voiced his tapes. You know, he had, now you're going to do this, now we're going to do that, now you're going into Focus 15. and. He voiced all his tapes. I didn't voice any of mine because I didn't want to be leading the witness. I wanted people just to experience whatever they experienced and to be on their own so that when they, they learned this stuff, they could do it on their own. It's not like, well, I can only do it, but I only when Bob Monroe's talking to me on the tape, you know, mm -hmm. you know, you get used to anything, you get used to it and that's the way you learn it. Then that's the way it has to be for you to do it. So I was careful not to do any of that. So I took Bob's tapes. I got them to give me just their background sound with no voice. So it was the TMI sound with no voice in it. So half the tapes I played to my group was TMI sound, you know, sound based sound, and half of it was my binaural beats. And of course, at the end, I always pass out things, you know, how did you like this? What was the most thing mm -hmm. interesting? And one of my questions was, did you like the TMI sound or, you know, the MBT sound better? Which worked best for you? And I found about 95% preferred the MBT sound. And I think it was probably, it was just a little cleaner, a little less subtle. You know, the TMI sounds got all kinds of little things in it. And it was just binaural beat, which is, I think, really the active ingredient in the TMI sound for that much now. TMI has gone on to other things. They've changed their technology. So I'm really talking about old technology. My connection with TMI stopped somewhere about 1980, late 70s. I started with Bob Monroe in 1971, 72, and probably spent 15 to 20 hours a week with him for mm -hmm. five or six years, seven years. And somewhere toward the late 70s, that slowed down. And by the early 80s, I really wasn't going out to the lab anymore. So that's kind of the time that I was connected with Monroe and going out there. So it's not a real long time, but it was intense. And I learned a lot during that time. So it's mostly first half of the 70s was the time that I was putting in those kinds of hours with Bob. So anyway, some people like the TMI better because they were used to it. They'd had years and years of listening mm -hmm. to that sound and it's just, oh yeah, that's my sound, you know, and they, they liked it better because they were very used to it. And I'm sure some people like mine better because they were used to that. But in general, there was about a 50-50 number of people came in from both sides and about 95% of them really preferred the, the binaural beats that I put together. So, you know, and I don't think it was a big deal. Some people said it didn't matter. They were both good. So both are effective. It's not that one's 
Yeah, I don't want you to think that, you know, here's TMI, it's only that effective. And the binaural beats, oh, they're that effective. You know, they were both effective. So the decision point wasn't, you know, which one's effective and which one's not, but which one did you like the best? And that was probably, you know, here's one and, you know, there's the other. They're probably just a little different from each other would be my well, guess. And just to, just to be clear, the operational part of your signal, i.e., the in terms of the sound, the part that actually puts you into that state, yours is just a pure signal, whereas the other version has some, you know. Other stuff uh, going on in there. Yeah, just some things to make it more pleasant and things like just kind of the, yours is kind of more of the, the substance. The other one has a little bit more form. That would be, that would be what I would say. Now, I okay. don't want to put the words in the mouth of the TMI people. They may disagree with that. They may say, you know, all that stuff we have in there, it's all very important, and it does this and it does that. And that may be true. I'm not saying that's not the case. It may be true. Like I say, I kind of broke ties with TMI. I moved out of the area. I didn't live in that same area anymore. So I left and went someplace that's 600 miles away. So I didn't get back so often after that because I moved out of the area. And I did come back yearly because Bob put me on the board of uh, directors. He had a board of directors that helped him manage and, you know, where should we go next and that kind of stuff. And I did that for another decade after I moved out of that area, I came back. So I was kind of involved with it, but not really there on an everyday basis. This was come in for, you know, for two days, you know, once a year kind of a thing. It wasn't very intense. Now, when did the military show up? or the CIA or whomever. You know, I think that was mostly after I was gone. I think most of that happened after I was gone. Now, while I was there, you know, at the time, I should say, Dennis and I, we both worked for an organization called Foreign Science and Technology Center, which is now NGIC, National Ground Intelligence Center, NGIC, I think. So it was Army Technical Intelligence was the job that mm. I was in, and so was Dennis. And what we did is we looked at foreign technology to see, one, what we could learn from it if it had things in it that was better than our own technology. But two, if we had to go up against that foreign technology, what was its Achilles heel? What's were its weak points? How would you approach it and beat it? You know, What would be a good counter technology for it? So that's what foreign science technology did. It looked at everything, you know, and, and it was a broad, it wasn't Dennis and I were both in the same division, which was uh, kind of electronics, electronic mm -hmm. gizmos. So I worked radar and other sorts of things and Dennis worked other electronic stuff. So we were both in the electronics division of this thing and FSTC had everything from, you know, uniforms and mess kits, you know, to uh, everything else, everything that the army did, they looked at foreign technology to see, you know, what its weak links were, you know, what its problems were and what its advantages were. So it's just kind of a smart thing to do that you keep up with what the other person's got and how you can deal with it if you have to. So anyway, that's, well, I spent the entirety of my time in the military working as op four, presenting the Russian or Soviet threat. Uh, so, yeah. so, same yeah, I, thing. Same yeah, I, spent, I spent the first 10 years of my career was, it was in the Intel business. And then when I left town, I went to work for an engineering company that basically provided technical services to uh, missile defense. So then I worked in that missile defense area. So anyway, your question about the military got into it. It really, when I was there, they didn't. Only very much on the edge they did. Like there was a couple of guys in CIA who mm -hmm. were real interested and they came down and visited once, but it was like a day visit, spent two or three hours and left kind of thing. You know, it wasn't really that they were collaborating at that point. They were just seeing what was there and how did it work and was it interesting? You know, they were kind of coming to see what Bob was doing. So I was there kind of when that happened. So that was the first kind of getting to know you stuff. And that's about all I saw, you know, the, as far as any cooperation or anything that, that went on between them, I was already gone before any of that took place. So I noticed the guys in the CIA who were interested in that sort of thing. And 
I think eventually there's a CIA document that's been floating around for the last 15 years or so that was a declassification of a CIA report on the Monroe Institute. And I think that's probably that same group of guys that you know came down looking around to see what we were doing and what our programs were like. And it's probably that same bunch. So in any case, I don't know much about interaction of government and Monroe other than that they were early on kind of interested in what we did and how it worked and what the technology was and that sort of thing, just a, an interest. But it hadn't really developed into anything, I think, until maybe later there was a little more interest in it. So we had that. There was also a couple of guys, Tom Bearden. He was in uh, Missile Intelligence oh. Center. He was in MISIC. And he wrote some papers about consciousness and so on. So he was interested in it. So there were people in the intelligence community who were, I mean, after all, this was the 70s. This was the early 70s, right? And, you know, mind and consciousness and things you could do. First Earth Battalion, all that stuff. Yeah, this was, yeah, this was, you know, it was time. So, yeah, there were people in all parts of the intel world that were saying, you know, this might be interesting to investigate some of this and see if there was anything there that we could use or so the ideas were just kind of floating up because that was the time for them to float up. That was the 70s and everything had kind of opened up and Timothy Leary was taking drugs and going on trips. And there was just a general more openness toward those kinds of things than there had been before. So the fact that there was some interest in it is pretty. But then it kind of shut, though, after that, right? Like in the, I don't know, 90s, like it was kind of it just kind of went away for a brief period of time. Well, I don't know so much about that. I wasn't there then. And I know that the program where they did the remote viewing, that shut down, you know. 95, yeah. Yeah, that just shut down. And I think, you know, if I just had to guess why that was, I'd guess that they got somebody in charge, you know, a couple of levels up who said, that woo-woo stuff, yeah, that's crazy. We don't do that kind of stuff here and got rid of it because there's a lot of prejudice against that kind of thing. You know, you have to be pretty open minded to deal with that. And particularly in that part of the military that is kind of experimental, it's full of physicists, it's full of scientists, it's full of techies and techies in our culture have this innate sense of materialism is the truth. And it just comes in our culture. It's not that they're taught that in school, but it's just you just get that out of the culture that materialism is the right answer. And that's the way the world works. And if you're a materialist, then all this stuff is woo woo nonsense. You see, it can't make any sense. It's forbidden by theory. So I think there was probably a strong element, you know, just in our culture. So it was bound to be also in DOD and in the management. I mean, that's just there. And I think what happened was you went from a culture that happened to have a couple of open-minded guys there in a row that said, well, okay, let's give it a try and see how it works. Mm -hmm. And then you ended up with some closed-minded guys that said, that's stupid. It makes us look stupid that we're playing with with woo-woo stuff like that. You know, get rid of it. So there's an apocryphal story by uh, Jim Semivan. I'm not sure where I heard him say this or if somebody related that he said this, but he was talking to somebody who was more senior in the CIA and he asked him, why did you guys cancel this? And he's, and the person told him like, look, it's undeniable that this stuff worked. It, it worked. The problem is, is when you're briefing the president and you give him this information and he asks you, well, how does it work? They couldn't explain it. So because they couldn't explain it, they, you know, shut off, that particular program. That's not to say that they shunted it somewhere else, but. That's more of an excuse than a reason. Fair. If if you're getting good information, you you know, you use that information and you keep it going. And that sounds like maybe an excuse of why we did something stupid. But the real reason is, I think it's just too many materialists could not stand to be associated with that sort of stuff because it was just by definition, it's nonsense. And any good scientist will tell you that. It just has to be nonsense. You know, and, you know, scientists go to a, that materialism, that belief in materialism is so strong 
that scientists say a lot of things that are just outright stupid, silly. Because if you're a materialist, you also have to be a determinist because materialism is deterministic. Mm -hmm. Okay, If you're a determinist, then you have to say there's no such thing as time because determinist, things don't change. Everything's determined. Nothing changes. There is no time. You have to say there is no free will because there are no choices because everything's already done. And then you have to say there is no consciousness. So now here's three things that everybody sees every day. <laughs> we right. see time, it goes by, we're conscious, we make choices. I mean, all of that stuff is just as obvious as, is there a thing called air that we breathe? Well, yes, you know, we all experience it every day. Even even synchronicities, <laughs> like like once you start noticing them, then you like they're everywhere. Now, part of that's <laughs> natural. Once you start noticing something, you see more of it, yeah. but there is something yeah. to that. Yeah, so anyway, these things... Consciousness, you know, free will and choice are all totally obvious to anybody who, you know, looks at reality. You know, any experimentalist that looks at reality and say, well, let's see what we see. You know, let's do an experiment. Can I make a choice? <laughs> well, I made a choice to come here and, you know, join in this program, didn't I? And you made a choice to do it, too. And, you know, of course we make choices. And, of course, there's time. You know, if there's no time, there's no learning. You know, you yeah. learn before you learn, after you learn. There's no evolution. There's no change. Nothing. So it's basically the null set. Reality is the null set of nothing. Ever happens, ever. It's just done. And so what? It's, it's dull. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't produce anything. It has no purpose. It has no value. You see, it's, so it's all really just a stupid thing. But yet all these smart physicists will stand up and say, oh, there is no time. These things are all just illusions. And so says, well, what do you mean? How are they illusions? Well, we don't know yet, but we know they have to be illusions because otherwise determinism, you know, wouldn't hold. And if determinism doesn't hold, materialism wouldn't hold. And we believe in materialism. So scientists believe in materialism like any, you know, deep dish religious person believe, you know, believes in their dogma. It's just scientific dogma and they believe it, you know, hook, line, and sinker, and they can't get away from it. And it's not just isolated physicists. It's our whole culture has accepted that. So I think that's what happened to a successful program that was working. It just couldn't be abided by the techies who know that it had to be, by definition, silly. Couldn't possibly. Officially. Yeah. Officially. Yeah. I'm sure... They just exactly. moved it somewhere else. And, oh, yeah, there yeah. were those people lower down in the organization that said, but, but, but we're getting a lot of good in, but, yeah. you know, and somebody said, can it, you know, we can't, it flows upstream to the people who don't understand and they say, can it. So, yeah, I think that's probably what happened. Okay, I think now's a good time to take a breather because I want to get into your big theory of everything in the next episode. So it, it was a pleasure talking to you, Tom, and I look forward to talking with you in the next episode. Okay. If you enjoyed this video, please click on like, subscribe, and the notification button so that you're alerted anytime I post something new.